This is episode number 269. Do you listen to reply or do you listen to understand? With Dr. Mark Goldston. Welcome. My name is Oleg Lohid, and this is the Overcoming Outs podcast, where you get a glimpse into the stories of individuals who've overcome adversity, suffering, and struggle in achieving their personal success. This podcast was built by you and for you to help you overcome adversity, suffering, and struggle in achieving your fullest potential. Before we get into today's episode, I'd like to make a few quick announcements. First one being an invitation to our upcoming conversation, which takes place every single Friday at 10.45 a.m. Central Time, hosted through LinkedIn Live or Facebook Live, where we explore the connection between one's personal narrative and the topics of appreciation, grief, resilience, gratitude, and many others. If this is of interest to you, please join us through either of the platforms, LinkedIn Live or Facebook Live. Share your insights and ask whatever questions you have in regard to each and every single one of the topics that we choose to discuss. The second announcement that I wanted to make is in regard to our show. And that is if our show has had any form of impact in your life, please consider supporting our cause by either making a contribution through our website at overcomingodds.today or leaving us a review on iTunes, Facebook, or Google so more people can find these inspiring and courageous conversations. Now, let's get back to the show. Mark, welcome to the show. It's great to be here with you, Alec. No, thank you. Thank you for connecting. And I've actually come across... A couple of the books that you've written suggested by a couple of my friends. And so I'm grateful that we're able to share the space today and discuss this topic of Michelangelo mindset. And I just, I want to make sure that I'm pronouncing those right because, well, my background, my story is that I wasn't born here. I, I was born in Russia actually and lived there for my first 12 years of my life. So whenever I come across certain terms or certain concepts, I try and pronounce it like I heard it many, many years ago. And then only to realize that there's so many different variations in the English language (laughs) to pronounce anything. So I'm grateful that we're able to connect. And I figure that the best way that maybe we can even start off this conversation to begin with is exploring what is that mindset to begin with and what piqued your interest in wanting to learn more about it. Well, if anyone knows anything about the great sculptor and the great artist, uh, Michelangelo, he did many paetas. He, he did the Statue of David in Florence. He painted the Sistine uh, ceiling and the Sistine Chapel. One of the things that he said, especially when he was sculpting, is, uh, I saw the angel in the marble and I carved to let it free. And so the Michelangelo mindset is seeing in wherever, whatever direction you're going, uh, that they already want something positive that's positive for them and positive for you. I'll give you an example. Uh, I've written or co-authored nine books. I have a book called Just Listen. It's behind me. It's probably the best known one. It's in 28 languages, and it became the top book on listening in the world. And I don't get hired to speak on listening in America because America's Americans don't want to listen. 
they want to be listened to. But I have spoken in Moscow twice, in India, the UK, and Canada. And I'll bring up Moscow. I spoke along with a Nobel Prize winner, Daniel Kahneman. He wrote Thinking Fast and Slow. And when I approached uh, Russia for the first time I spoke there, they said, Doctor, you know, you're a thought leader on this listing. Five of my books are bestsellers in Russia. And he, he said, you're a thought leader, you know, so don't try to do too many of these interactive exercises. You know, you're, you're coming from America. And I said to the people who organized the meeting, and the first time I went there, I spoke for six hours. It was just me. I said, all I do is interactive exercises. <laughs> and they looked at me and they looked at me like, we're in trouble. But it went so well that they made a highlight reel, a sizzle reel of my first presentation. I can send that to you because it showed the interactivity with the audience. And here's where I use the Michelangelo mindset. I could have looked at them as if they were going to judge me, as if they were going to be my enemy, as if they were looking for me to make a fool of myself. But instead, I looked at them as if they were my friend. I looked at them thinking, I'm not that famous for them to pay a lot of money to come here to make a fool out of myself. They came here wanting to learn something that will make their lives better. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and that's how I approached them. And I completely relaxed because I saw them as my friend, as opposed to someone who was judging me and hoping that I mess up. And they responded that way. And so by seeing in them, now, now inside them, there could have been the person who want, the part of their personality that wanted to judge me. Uh, and if I had said something arrogant or condescending, that's exactly what they would have done. But instead, I looked for the angel in the audience or the part of the audience that wanted to be there because they wanted help to make their lives better. And so the Michelangelo mindset is a way of relaxing your anxiety and along with it, that need to push hard to make people buy things. So for instance, we have a number of verticals and people can go to michelangelomindset.com. It's still in the beta phase. And we're actually looking for people to help uh, give us ideas so that people can help us on our journey with it. Uh, because once people get it, they will get it. So for instance, Michelangelo selling, how that works is inside every customer or client is someone who wants to buy something from you. Mm -hmm. If it's a B2B customer, what they're looking for is they don't want to regret saying yes to you. What's inside them is a fear of saying yes and then having their boss get angry at them. Why did you buy this for our company? It's a piece of junk. You paid too much. So inside them is a fear of saying yes, but inside them is also a fear of saying no, because if they don't buy it, and their company's competitor buys it, and it makes their company's competitor be hugely successful, that boss is going to say, didn't you have the chance to buy that? And you didn't? So, so inside them is this conflict. Uh, and if you can actually bring that out into the conversation, 
And if you can actually say, I know that you don't want to buy something and get in trouble, and you don't want to not buy something and get in trouble for missing out on something. And if you can engage them in a conversation about what are the best things that either they or their company had bought that actually really helped the company, and what were some of the disasters, that's a different kind of conversation. Mm-hmm. And then also, uh, so that's a B2B customer. For a B2C customer, what they're looking for is uh, they inside them is a desire to buy something and be delighted by it. But inside also is the fear of buying something and being frustrated and disappointed. They can't even use it. I'll tell you, I, I had a recent experience uh, as a B2C customer. People have been telling me since I told them that my MacBook is getting a little glitchy. Hmm. They said, well, if you don't travel much, you should get an Apple Mac mini. You have a monitor, you have a keyboard, that would really be neat. Uh, and so I bought one of those. And fortunately, I never took it out of the box because something was nagging at me. And even though I thought this would work really well, and I do have a monitor and I do have a keyboard, I really don't need a a laptop. But then I thought, wait a minute, if my laptop goes glitchy and I'm traveling, I don't travel with a Mac mini, I travel with a laptop. Mm -hmm. So what I decided to do, do instead is took everything on my glitchy laptop, uploaded it into the cloud so I could exhale. And so all my all my data is safe and I return the Mac mini and I'm going to wait until it gets glitchy and I'll go out and buy, you know, the latest MacBook Pro. But do you follow what I'm saying? I don't think I'm unusual in sometimes making a purchase and being too hasty and then regretting it. So the Michelangelo mindset is is believing that inside the other people is the desire to do something that you'd like them to do. So we have another vertical called Michelangelo leadership, because I am a coach to founders, entrepreneurs, and CEOs. And I coach them on Michelangelo leadership. And I say to them, uh, inside your company are people who want to feel that working for you and your company is the best job they've ever had. And they're also inside people, the fear that they're stuck in a job that they can't get out of and they better look for another job. Mm -hmm. And so in Michelangelo leadership, what we talk about is, and this is the only coaching that I do. I will only work with leaders, entrepreneurs, founders, and CEOs who want to be this. I said, what you want to be as a leader that causes your people to trust you, have confidence in you, feel safe with you, respect you, admire you, like you, and feel inspired by you. Because if you're a leader that they don't trust, they don't have confidence in, they don't feel safe, they don't respect, they don't admire, they don't like, they don't feel inspired, those people aren't going to be that happy with you. Yeah. And... Uh, and I'll just I'll just give it away. I actually write. I'm a founding member of the Newsweek Exec Expert Forum, and you can actually uh, one of my first articles was called "Design Thinking Leadership," 
And I said, the leaders that the world wants are people who have those qualities. And then the way you do it when I coach people uh, is if uh, people are looking for someone who is cool under pressure, they're calm. We call that, you may not know this because you're from Russia, but there's a word, they're unflappable. Nothing seems to get them upset, but they're present. They're not like robots. They're unflappable. They're present. They're knowledgeable. They know what they're talking about. They're wise. They know what's important. If, uh, if the setting is in a crisis, they take charge, but they're not controlling. They're not control freaks. They also have a sense of humor about themselves. They don't take themselves too seriously. They don't get defensive so easily. And they're gracious and they're humble. And so when I coach people using the Michelangelo coaching and Michelangelo leadership model, is if you can become someone who behaves in that way, uh, people will feel all those other feelings, the trust, the confidence, respect, safety, and all those. So is this making sense to you, Oleg? It does. And, and I'm curious, there are a couple of questions that come to mind or a couple of thoughts. The first one is in regard to everything that you just shared, why do you do what you do? What inspired this path in life? Well, my background is uh, I trained as a psychiatrist. And for 25 years, I was a, I subspecialized in suicide prevention, and none of my patients died by suicide. And I actually have co-authored two books during COVID. One of them is called Why Cope When You Can Heal. Mm -hmm. Why Cope When You Can Heal. And we introduced to the world the method that I use with patients who are suicidal. And that method is called surgical empathy. Surgical empathy. And uh, why I do what I do is what I realized is that inside every suicidal person, is someone who feels hopeless, helpless, worthless, useless, meaningless, purposeless, and, and it's pointless to go on. But inside each of them is hope. And if I can reach the part of them that feels hopeful inside the mind, their mind that's feeling hopeless. And one of the things that help them to feel hopeful is I was able to listen into them. I was able to listen into their eyes. Uh, and and I, I'll, share a, I'll share an anecdote which changed everything around for me. Uh, I was seeing a patient that I'll call Nancy. She had made three or four suicide attempts in the prior three or four years before she started seeing me. And I was seeing her for about six months and I didn't think I was making any progress. She'd come in, she wouldn't look at me. But that was the longest she'd gone without a suicide attempt or hospitalization. And so one Monday I came in to see her and I hadn't slept for about 30 hours because on the Saturday and Sunday before that Monday, I was moonlighting at a hospital, meaning I was covering for the other doctors who were away for the weekend. And sometimes you're up for 24 hours or 30 hours. So when I was with her, you know, I was sleep deprived. And she never made eye contact, Oleg. And as I sat there with her, all the color in the room turned to black and white. So I'm looking out in the room and it's black and white. And I felt very cold. And I thought I was having a stroke or a seizure. 
Now, I'm a medical doctor, so I'm a psychiatrist. I'm not a psychologist. I'm a psychiatrist. So I thought I was having a stroke or a seizure. So I did a neurologic exam on myself. So I'm going like this and like this, and I'm looking at my fingers. I'm tapping my elbows to see if I was having a stroke or a seizure. And I realized I'm all here. I'm not having a stroke or seizure. And it wasn't rude because she didn't make eye contact. And then I had this crazy idea that I was looking out at the world, feeling her feelings. It was black and white and cold. And because I was sleep deprived, I blurted this out to her. I said, Nancy, I didn't know it was so bad. And I can't help you kill yourself. But if you do, I will still think well of you. I'll miss you. And maybe I'll understand why you had to do it to get out of the pain. And I thought to myself, I just blew it. I just gave her permission. What the heck did I say that for? And that was the first time she looked at me, Oleg. And she looked at me. She grabbed onto my eyes. And I thought she was going to say, thank you for understanding. I'm overdue. And I said, what are you thinking? And she looked at me and she said, if you can really understand why I might have to kill myself to get out of the pain, maybe I won't need to. Mm. And then she smiled. And then while I was locking on her eyes, like I'm locking on yours, I said, here's what we're going to do. You're stuck in hell. You can't come to where I'm at. So I'm going to come and find you. And when I find you there, I'm going to keep you company for as long as it takes. Because you've just been there alone. And I don't want you to be alone anymore. Would that be okay? And then she started to tear up. And she started to cry with relief. Because... She was hopeless because she was all alone in the dark night of the soul. So can you follow that? Yeah. And when she started to cry, she started to feel relief. And slowly, it didn't happen in that one session, but slowly she began to feel hopeful because she wasn't alone anymore. That is fascinating. It's fascinating for a couple of different reasons. I think first is gives me a much better understanding of what it might mean to be understood. Because that's a question that I've tried to understand myself is what does that actually look like? And it varies from one person to another, because I, I don't think everyone's looking for the same thing. Everyone, I don't think everyone wants the same thing. Some people may just want a space to be heard, just listen to. The other thing that I find interesting that you mentioned at the beginning of this conversation is just a variation when it comes to listening and, and why or how it's different from one culture to another. And I'm curious to hear just from your experience, why is it different from one country to another, the concept of listening? You mentioned how in the United States, people listen differently compared to places like Russia, India, and some of these other places around the world. Well, be, what, are you, be, what are your thoughts well, on that? Well, because we... Everybody has a bias about the world. And I think America and a lot of the world has a transactional bias. So what 
people are listening for in America is how do I do a deal? They're not necessarily listening to connect, to get close to someone. And even when they think they're doing it, it's not even closeness. It's how do I listen to them so that maybe we can have sex tonight? Mm -hmm. And so it's very transactional. I think uh, there's other cultures, uh, particularly India, who has much, who are more spiritual and they have more of a curiosity. There's more of a curiosity about other people where other people are coming from. Uh, and it doesn't necessarily have to have an agenda of, uh, the, there's this expression of called whiffum, what's in it for me? Mm -hmm. You know, and so, um, although something I will tell you that I think is universal, and I spoke about in Moscow uh, uh, almost a couple of years ago, I, I headlined with a fellow named Daniel Kahneman, he won the Nobel Prize. He wrote Thinking Fast and Slow. He has a new book out called Noise. And five of my nine books in Russia are, uh, are bestsellers. And so th that's why they had me there. And one of the things I spoke about in the title of my talk was Change Everything You Know About Communication. And what I did with the audience is I said, if I focus on you listening to me, I will give you bullet points. You will write down the bullet points. You will try some of them, and most of them won't work. And you will say, it'll work for him. He's an expert. But if I'm entertaining and I have good stories, you'll give me your mind for an hour. And then I said, but if instead of that, I focus on what you're listening for, and I get what you're listening for without you telling me, and I deliver on it, you'll give me everything. Mm. So I'll give you an example and tell me how this feels differently to you. So you're a great host. You're listening to me. You're asking very good questions. Uh, I think they're following from our conversation. And hopefully I'm giving you good responses that you can check a box in your mind. But let me see if this is what you're listening for. I think what you're listening for is that the people who listen to your podcast trust you and have confidence in you. And you don't want to let them down. You want to honor your listeners' trust and confidence in you. And what you're listening for is information that will be valuable to them that they can use immediately. What you're also listening for is you want to protect them from someone who's here to try and hard sell you and hard sell them. Mm -hmm. Because you want to honor your listeners' trust and confidence. And you may also be listening for someone who maybe they have a best-selling book, but they provide zero value and you, and you can't even understand them because you need to protect your listeners from them. And you may have to go back to them and say, yep, you know, we couldn't use the podcast. Uh, maybe we'll have to do it over again. Now, I'm sure that's very rare, but is any of that correct that what you're listening for is, will my guest give my listeners value that makes their lives immediately better? Yes and no. 
I, I think the yes component is 100% behind what you said as far as wanting to create a space for other people to find whatever answers that they're looking for in their lives as it relates to this topic. No, because there is something that I believe in, and that's trying to preserve the natural curiosity of the space that you and I create. So what I believe in, and this is just a personal belief and my perspective of it, is that the only thing that I quote unquote can control is the time that you and I share right now. I can't control when someone is going to listen to this. I can't control what space they're going to be in when they listen to it. I can't control whether or not they listen to it at all. And that's where I think for me, it made the biggest difference in even answering your initial question when we were talking about the audience and who listens to the show is I think I know, I can assume who listened to it yesterday, but I truly can't predict who's going to listen to it today or tomorrow. So I think for me, the question that I choose to explore when I go into every conversation is what am I listening for. And I don't have a checklist that goes in my mind as far as sound bites or great one to two minute segments to publish from this. I more so listen for genuine curiosity and trying to understand the meaning of the experiences that the person has had and how those experiences contribute towards the person that I'm seeing right now. So those are the things that I listen for. It's just a, a deeper understanding behind the cover, so to speak. You know, it's like you see a book, you see the, you see the cover, but then the question is like, well, what's inside? And then, and then for me, the question is, what's inside of the inside? What is not being said? What is read between the lines? And that's a wonderful answer, by the way. And so it, 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 let me see if I understand it. It sounds like you're, you can't listen for others, but you can listen for your own curiosity. Mm -hmm. And what we have is the time we're together. And you're listening for congruence. So you're listening at various levels. And when someone shares something, it piques your curiosity to wonder what's behind it. And the more you can understand what's behind it, uh, the more meaningful it is to you, and the more congruent the person you're speaking to becomes. Mm -hmm. And the more congruent, the more three-dimensional the conversation. Mm -hmm. And the more trust the more sense of comfort, all of these elements, I think, begin to come into play. Because I think, as you were mentioning earlier, even in regard to the concept of trust, I think it comes in many different forms. Some people trust others for X, Y, and Z reasons. Others seek additional layers, so to speak, to get to that level of trust where they can share a space like this and feel like there is no judgment, there is no passing of assumptions or bias or anything that we might, that I might deal with on a daily basis. And so for me, I think this concept of listening, it's fascinating for two reasons. First, is that I do believe that there's a huge difference between listening to respond and listening to understand. 
And the second part that I've been trying to understand is how is it different across different cultures? And it's something that you've touched upon a couple of times throughout this conversation. And I, I agree with elements of that. I think, well, I can only speak from the experience that I have, and, and that's living in Russia and living in the United States. In the United States, I would say many of the conversations that I take part in are transactional. And I think it goes back to what you said, what's in it for me. The, the part that I've been trying to challenge myself in is does a conversation still carry value even if I don't see the immediate value to begin with? What if the value of that conversation will show up in five or 10 years? Therefore, does everything have meaning? Well, I, I, let me run. Let me respond to that because, uh, and I love how you're you're fleshing this out because uh, it's going to cause me to be more uh, thoughtful. So, if I'm with someone who's transactional, there's a part of me that has a bias that's, I wouldn't say anti-transactional, but I'm not very keen on transactional because it feels like all they're listening for is what they can get from me. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, if I can realize that there's nothing wrong with their being transactional, it works for them. It may be something that they need to be because they have to make a living. They have to close a sale. They have to meet their numbers. And maybe what's driving that, that I can react in a negative way, is the, their fear of not being able to make the transaction. Mm -hmm. You know, their fear of our conversation not leading to a deal, and they have to make a certain amount of deals. And even if we're having a friendly conversation, I can understand they're saying, yes, we're having a friendly conversation. Uh, but they may be thinking, uh, you know, Mark, I already have enough friends. Uh, we're having a friendly conversation, but this conversation has a business purpose. And the business purpose is that I need to increase my business so that I can do well in my job. And there's nothing wrong with that. And because I come from the therapy side of the fence, which is much more about empathy and, and less about transaction, you know, there's a part of me that when I'm up, uh, up with someone who's being purely transactional, that I can have my own negative bias towards that. But you're helping me because I think when I'm in a business setting, uh, I need to be able to see that their bias is the more relevant one, because if it's a business setting, it's about business. Mm -hmm. They have every right to try to close a deal with me and use anything they can to close that deal with me. But I have every right to protect myself if I feel that they're doing it is going to put me at a disadvantage. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a beautiful thing for a couple of reasons. For me, I, it acknowledges that there's a choice. There's a choice in any conversation. Looking at this podcast interview as a form of what you just described, one can look at this and view this as a transactional means as far as Mark needs to say X, Y, and Z, and this is how it gets repurposed, and this is how it gets presented to the audience or possible clients or consumers or whichever way you want to categorize that. 
But then there's also the other side of that. And that's, that's not always the metric. And, and that's, I think, the beauty for me that I think platforms like this offer is that the metrics could be different from one podcast to another. In fact, one of the things that I'll share with you and anyone else that's listening right now is in starting a podcast, one of the challenges that I have personally experienced, which I think relates to this concept of listening for the deeper meaning or, or reading between the lines is in pitching different guests to be on the show, not everyone wants what you want. So some people will come back to us and say, well, I will only do this if your number of listeners is this amount. I will only do this if the number of reviews meets this amount. I will only do this if X, Y, and Z. And that's where I think going back to your point, dealing with the negative bias, I try and put myself in that situation when I'm aware of it and understand that, okay, these people are looking for X, Y, and Z, but it doesn't make them wrong. It's just they have a different check checklist that they're going off of. They're looking for, they have a different set of metrics that define impact for them. Now, I'm glad you bring this up. I'm glad you bring this up because I'm, I'm having a problem with my conscience, mm-hmm. not on this podcast, but with my podcast. So I'm getting between 10 and 12 requests to be on my podcast a week. And, uh, and I've done about 230 episodes and I've had some name people, Jordan Peterson, Larry King, uh, Tom Steyer, who ran for president, uh, Ken Blanchard, uh, uh, some notable uh, women thought leaders, Dory Clark, Esther Wojcicki, Margaret Heffernan. And so what's happening now? Uh, and and I'm older. I'm in my 70s. I look pretty good for a guy in his 70s, I'm told. <laughs> I'm told. Uh, you just have say, a couple of years on me. Don't worry. <laughs> people say you, my people will say when they're your age, my parents don't look as young as you. But uh, 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 but, but but that's because I I try to stay immature. Just because you grow older doesn't mean you have to grow up. Mm-hmm. But uh, but I'll get requests, and I can see that people have something meaningful to say. But when I'm getting ten to twelve requests a week. And now what I'm saying is, you know, you would make a wonderful guest, but I'm only posting two podcasts a week. I'm getting 10 to 12 requests. So now I'm saying it really comes down to how would you support the episode? Because again, I I don't really, I don't have a team of social media to push it out. I don't do transcripts of the episodes, but in spite of that, it seems to be doing pretty well. So now I'm having to say, even when I know people have value to give my audience, you know, do you have social media to support the episode? Or do you have a podcast that, uh, that I could be a guest on, you know, where we could do an exchange? And it's bothering my conscience because, you know, some of the requests are from people who have great stories, but, uh, and I haven't resolved it. You know, my people in the podcast field say, Mark, you're just being realistic. You know, if you don't have the, the uh, ability to promote things on social media, um, and you don't have a team to do that, 
you can have a wonderful podcast, but no one will hear it. Whereas if you can have a guest who is an influencer, and you can have a conversation that they like, uh, they will then share it with more people. But still, um, I read every request to be a guest on my podcast. But I'm I'm still going through that, uh, that attack of conscience that this is really a good person, and they deserve to have their story told. But I'm only releasing two a week, and I'm doing five or six interviews a week. So so I have this long line of podcasts where people will say I, I was on three months ago, when's it going to come on? <laughs> so it's a it's a challenge. I, I, I would welcome your input on it because uh, I haven't resolved it. Well, I would say for from my end, we're in a similar boat, we probably get similar number of requests, maybe even more at times, I know that we've done 260 going on to 270 episodes. And we've had variety of guests, variety of platforms. I think what I've learned, ultimately, in once again, my opinion of it, and that is, for many chapters of my life, I believed and I subscribed to this thinking of changing one person at a time, focusing on someone else's life other than the life at hand. And what I've realized ultimately, what made the biggest difference for me is when I flipped the script, when I changed the narrative and that's being focused solely on the external world and started to focus on the internal world, I began to realize that those who are looking for it and those who are willing to listen will find a way to get to your content. We started with no website for the podcast. It was solely through YouTube and people still found it. Then we expanded into these other platforms, iTunes, Spotify, wherever else people found it there. So I think if anything, what I choose to take away from similar conversations that you've had is that people have their own experiences and people will project their own meaning on those conversations. My uncle said, and pardon my language here, but he said, opinions are like assholes. Everyone has one. And sometimes what I've learned is that even when you don't ask for an opinion, you may still receive it. So depending on what you're, what I'm trying to solve and who I'm talking to, I may get 20 different opinions of how I should go about it when the reality of the matter is what I realized is just pick one and go with it. That's very, how old, how old are you, Oleg? 28, 28 years old. You have a wisdom way beyond your years. Well, it's, it's been, it's been quite the journey. It's been quite the journey of just discovery and exploration. And I'll tell you this. It hasn't been an easy ride by any means. I wouldn't want it to be easy to begin with. I think there is beauty in the hardship. I think there's beauty in the challenge. If anything, the challenges and the hardships help me preserve my curiosity for life. And what I've also realized going back to the building of the podcast and everything is Four years ago, when I was first starting this, I took a very different approach to this 
organization. And that is instead of focusing on an external customer, I told myself that I'm going to become the customer of this work. The reason why I did that is because I didn't want to depend on someone else to presumably solve a problem while understanding that people change and people's problems change. So whatever your problem might've been yesterday may not be the problem that you have today. And it may not be the problem that you have tomorrow. So if I can't control that, how can I reverse that? And that's where I became the client of this work. And I started to build it from within. Because at the end of the day, I'm the only person that I truly can understand, I believe, in my opinion, to the fullest degree, you know, to the 10th or nth degree of it all. So I think going back to what we started talking about at the beginning, listening to understand, it's really been at the core of who I am. And part of listening to understand for me came with letting go of it has to be this way. The conversation has to be in this shape, this form, this time, this person. When the reality of the matter is, it just is what it is. Very similar to the book that you have in the background. Just listen. Just be. Just let it be. You know, when you sent me the materials and you and, 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 and I was really impressed with all the particular verticals that we could explore and all the potential questions underneath it all, it, it uh, I'd never seen it spelled out that way. And I was impressed with it, but it felt different than what you're talking about because it seemed very structured. And, and I and I think if it was meant as a catalyst as opposed to anything that would be confining that uh, uh, that would have been that would have helped my own bias because when I saw it I got nervous like well I'm not structured this way I don't know if I fit in <laughs> I, I don't know if I fit in any of these verticals and by the way they're all great verticals I, I, I mean you know you could almost publish the sheet that you sent me because yeah. you know if you're looking to write articles uh, under various uh, uh, topics. These are the kinds of questions you might want to get answered. These mm -hmm. are the kind of questions you might want to cover in your article. I, I thought it was fascinating, but I'm I'm glad that and I was a little nervous, but I'm glad that we had this podcast. Uh, and before you said it, it's really going to be conversational. Mm -hmm. uh, and that doesn't mean it has to be superficial. I mean, mm -hmm. conversational can be quite deep. And, uh, and I can just feel this hunger in you for understanding and uh and and part of what i'm trying to add to the world is is it's different to feel understood than it is to feel felt what do you mean by that um when when i was able to do that breakthrough to nancy and and when I was able to feel how immense her pain was, and that given how painful it was, that suicide was a was a reasonable response. You know, there's a saying: suicide is a temporary, uh, is a permanent solution to a temporary problem because once you do it, it's over. But given the immense pain she felt, 
And my feeling it by, you know, the world going black and white and my feeling cold, I was thinking, gee, if I felt this all the time, I want the pain to go away. And if I couldn't make the pain go away, you know, there's something about death that was appealing. So I think she felt felt by that. And also when I validated it, when I said, uh, uh, I'll, I'll still think well of you and maybe and I'll miss you and maybe I'll understand why you had to because the pain was so awful. She felt validated in her pain and she felt felt. Whereas feeling understood would be if I were to say, uh, well, I can understand why you're feeling so awful because if nothing's really working out for you, anyone would feel that way and that's understandable. So she might have felt understood by that. But when I went into that other space where I just felt her feelings and I would want relief from them, she felt felt. Yeah, 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 there's a distinction I I, I made because, you know, I I speak with doctors uh, and I say there's a difference between clinical empathy and surgical empathy. So clinical empathy enables the doctor to still keep a safe distance from the pain and experience of their patient. They care about it in a professional way. So clinical, so if you're coming in and you were seeing me and you were really depressed, and if I'm a psychiatrist, you know, it's, you're not coming in because you're having a great time. And so clinical uh, empathy might be, um, uh, I, uh, have you been depressed or anxious or feeling, you know, distressed? Yes. How long have you been feeling it? Such and such. Uh, that must seem like uh, a long time to have to deal with it. Yes. So, you know, that's, they feel understood, but that's There's different. A There's a distance. That's different than my, they're coming in and, and it's nuanced. If, so if you're that person and I say, have you been feeling depressed? That's a perfectly uh, professional, uh, good, good answer uh, or question. If I, but if instead I look at them and say, you've been depressed, you've been feeling depressed. Isn't that true? Do you follow me? They'll lean into it. Yeah. And, and there are times when it's unbearable. Is that true? Yeah. And there are times when it's unbearable and it's not letting up that you don't know how you're going to make it through it. Is that true? Yeah. Can you take me to the last time you felt that? So can you see the difference? Oh, yeah. It's nuanced. There's a a difference. What I feel is that there's a difference in empathy one is that there is more of a distance created and it's almost as if you're speaking to the person, but you're speaking to them indirectly. There's no direct approach. And that's, and I I don't know which one is right or wrong, so to speak. I think it probably works for for one person and may not work for another. But the second one, I definitely feel that difference because then it's, there's a, there's almost like a personal connection that you, you're, you're invested in me. You're invested in wanting to learn more just by the choice of words, really choice of words. And I think if anything, what I've learned and what I heard from the two examples 
is that in choosing those words, it brings out a different form of energy. Oh, absolutely. Because, because I think um, in, in just listen, I, I talk about a bunch of things, but I, one of the things I talk about is this four levels of, of talking uh, and you can talk over people at people to people or with people over at to or with. And the way you know you're doing it is by the body language of the other person. If you talk over someone, it's like you're insulting them. And if you're talking over an audience and insulting them, and the audience are not martyrs, if there's a break, you know, the audience shouldn't come back because you're insulting them. If you're talking at people, it's as if you're putting your finger in their face, and they'll either stick their chin up at you defiantly and say, you can't talk at me that way. Who do you think you are? Or they'll be intimidated and they'll hunker down and, and, and uh, because they feel like you're abusing them. If you're talking to someone, they'll nod from the neck up and that's business as usual. That's how you exchange information, exchange goods. And, and that's the majority of conversations. But the gold standard is if you talk with someone and you can tell that you're talking with someone because when you're with them, you'll notice that they relax their shoulders. Because it's as if you're going around behind them, putting your arm around their back and saying, we're going to get through this. It's going to be okay. And so I, what I'm trying to do is teach, coach, instruct the world and have more, having more conversations where you're talking with people. Not at them. Yeah. Where can people find some of those conversations that take place? Where can people learn more about the book? The one that you have in the background, as well as a variety of other books that you've written. And well, outside thank of you. that, where can people connect with you personally? Well, thank you. Well, if you Google me under a variety of categories, if you mm -hmm. Google just listen, Mark Goulston, you'll find all kinds of interviews and videos and articles. And if you go to Amazon, you'll see all my books. Um, uh, I have a personal website, markgoulston.com, M-A-R-K-G-O-U-L-S-T-O-N.com. And I keep that pretty current. Uh, I'm pretty also current on LinkedIn. Uh, I also have a beta version of what we mentioned at the beginning, michelangelomindset.com. And we're just developing that as we speak. And, 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 and the world is welcome to see it in beta. It's okay. I'm just inviting whoever would like to visit it. And there's actually a free giveaway there of a, of a short ebook that gives you sort of, sort of the, an experience, uh, a Michelangelo mindset experience. And the ebook is called wow. Hmm. Yes. Because, uh, to be successful in the world or even to be happy, what you really want to create in other people is the experience of, wow, I can't believe what you're saying. That's, uh, and uh, that's amazing. I've never heard that before. Hmm. This is actually worth thinking about. This is worth, this is worth spending some time because it feels relevant to me. And then yes is, this is what I was looking for. Yes, sold. 
So we actually, uh, my partner and I actually have a Wow Hmm Yes podcast, and we have a few episodes. It's up uh, on uh, uh, Apple Podcasts uh, because Michelangelo mindset is too esoteric until people find out what it is. But but most people get Wow Hmm Yes. I mean. To be honest, Oleg, if I was listening to this conversation, and I'm not just talking about me, I'm talking about you as the host. If I was listening to this conversation, you as a 28-year-old, and the wisdom and perspective and how precise and articulate you are, uh, I would say, wow, hmm, yes, this is a, this is a younger person who the world needs more of. The world needs more of you. I appreciate that. You know, because you don't disdain people who are smart, uh, uh, because a lot of smart people can sometimes be manipulative, but you're, you're very, you're accepting. Well, they're coming from that agenda to each their own, but you're able to be smart, you're able to be bright, and you're able to be wise. You've got the whole package. Thank you all for listening to today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. If you haven't done so already, please consider subscribing to our future episodes so you can receive all of the latest content. Also, if you like what you heard, consider supporting our work by either making a contribution through our website at overcomingodds.today or leaving us a review on iTunes, Facebook, or Google so more people can find these inspiring and courageous conversations. Once again, we thank you for listening and we'll look forward to having you next time.